I invite you to find Luke chapter 12 in your Bible. Luke 12, you're looking for verse 22. Passage this morning is Luke 12, 22 through 34. We're looking at the words of Jesus together. The teaching that Jesus gives us here in this passage on the theme of do not be anxious is very easy to understand. The concepts and the illustrations are simple. There's nothing difficult to understand here. These things um, that we're going to read about are just really hard to do. They're hard to believe and they're hard to do. And this illustrates something about the nature of preaching. One legitimate question that might arise for you when we read a really simple passage of Scripture like this that's really easy to understand at face value, one thing you might wonder is, where is the need for this text to be preached? If anyone can open their Bible and understand what this is, why spend half an hour with someone up front talking about it if it's really easy to understand? When that time could be spent more profitably, maybe by going out and serving people, praying, whatever, whatever else might be profitable. Why the, why the need of preaching if anyone can open their Bible and read this and, and understand it? Because it's very simple. Why does it need to be preached? Well, preaching doesn't exist because one person knows everything and everyone else doesn't know anything. Preaching exists because all of us know what we should do and should believe and none of us want to do it. Preaching does not attempt to address an information gap between preacher and congregation. Preaching addresses an obedience gap between all of us and God. The Bible addresses the information gap. Preaching addresses this huge obedience gap between knowing very well what we should do and being able to understand it and everyone looking around saying, I don't want to do that. I don't believe that. And so in a sermon, the Holy Spirit fashions an arrow out of the word of God and shoots it at each person in just the right place for maximum effectiveness, pierces the heart to bring life change and conviction. So therefore, it's very likely that on the majority of Sundays, especially if you go to Prairie Hill, on the majority of Sundays, you don't go home puffed up with knowledge. You're not learning too much from the person that stands up here. Much more often, hopefully, you go home wounded with conviction. And that's very, very good. We have a much greater need of conviction than we do of knowledge. Think about how many people out there stand with all this knowledge of the Scriptures And all they're missing is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So simple teaching before us today, but do we believe it? And do we practice it? 
Let's read the text and then we'll do some work to find out, okay? If you can stand this morning, I want to invite you to stand in honor of God and his word. This is uh, Luke 12, beginning in verse 22. Very familiar, probably. And he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father, thank you for breath. Thank you for life. Thank you for time. Thank you for beauty. Thank you that there's such a thing in this world as grace. There's such things in this world as patience and forgiveness. And thank you that all these things find their perfection in Jesus Christ. We ask you to honor him now in this gathering. uh, For your glory and for our joy. We ask in his holy name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Some of you have a translation that reads, uh, do not worry. So the copy of the scriptures that you have doesn't say do not be anxious. Anxious, it says do not worry. That's a really good translation, I think. In fact, it's, it's probably more helpful to read this as do not uh, worry rather than do not be anxious. Probably better in, in our context is what I mean. Um, clinical anxiety is a real thing, as you know. Clinical anxiety is a a different thing from what Jesus speaks of here. And for that reason, it may be more helpful for us to translate the command here as do not worry about your life rather than do not be anxious, just to keep a a separation between the kinds of anxieties that may need medical attention and what Jesus is talking about here. The heart of what he is saying is, is something like, do not be overly concerned with. 
it may be helpful to think back to chapter 10. You remember the passage about Mary and Martha? You know, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet listening. Martha running around concerned about many things. Remember, Jesus addresses Martha's um, great concern with all the externals. Same word, okay? Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. That first word, worried, same word that's here in Luke 12. Overly concerned. Here in Luke 12, Jesus is talking with his disciples. He's speaking into our lives as well. His word to us is, do not be anxious. Do not be overly concerned about your life. What you will eat, your body, what you will put on. Don't be overly concerned about those basic needs like food and clothing. It's not hard to understand, is it? Really hard to do. Much harder to do than it is to understand. One question that might be put forward at just this point is, well, how far does this command extend into our lives? Like, okay, we see do not be overly, overly concerned with food and clothing. Down in verse 29, Jesus is going to add drink to that list. So food, clothing, drink. Don't be overly concerned about those things, but is that where it all stops? Like, is it okay to be worried about other things? Maybe like bigger things. Is it okay to be worried about the lives of our family members, worried about our aging parents, worried about our children? Is it okay to be worried about the state of our country or the state of the world? What about our job and our future? What about the state of the church? Can we be worried about that or the state of the culture? What about the status of our state and federal government? What about the state of the economy? What about, there's lots of stuff out there that we can find to be worried about. How far does this command extend? Well, I think verse 25 answers that question. In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, if you can't add a single hour to the span of your life, if you can't do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest, meaning the rest of your life, meaning everything else. If you can't add an hour to your life, why are you anxious about the rest of your life? So anxiousness or worry seems to be completely incompatible with the life of a disciple of Jesus. Completely incompatible with someone who is under the care of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, how is this possible? <laughs> how, could it, how could it be that we could go through life and not be worried about all these things that are so obviously worrying? Well, I hope this will be helpful to you. There is a difference between being anxious and being troubled. It's good for a Christian to be troubled. It's not good for a Christian to be anxious. Being troubled by what we see around us, in ourselves, in our world, in our country, in our family, in our relationships, being troubled about what we see in all those areas is not only acceptable, but good. Jesus confessed a a troubled soul, 
in response to what he experienced around him. John 11, John 12. You can go to those chapters, John 11, John 12, and see almost that exact wording. My soul is troubled. Jesus, greatly troubled in soul. If we're not troubled by the presence of sin and death and evil when we see it, then something is wrong with us. Being troubled in soul is a Christ-like thing. Being troubled leads to lament where we express our troubled soul to God over what we're encountering. That's a good and Christ-like response. Being anxious or worried is not. We never, we never read that Jesus was worried. Troubled? Yes. We do read that. Worried? No. Why not? What's the difference? Worry fails to take into account the sovereign plan and care of God. Worry sees an open-ended, unattended, uncertain future. Worry sees our days as unplanned, uncared for, unstructured, and possibly disastrous. The reason that Jesus was never anxious or worried was because he knew the Father is absolutely good and absolutely sovereign, in control. And riveted to those two certainties, he walked through life never worried, but often troubled. And what I want to say to you, if you're a Christ follower, is that this is our model. This, this is the Christ life often troubled, never worried. Such is our confidence in the sovereign plan and care of God. That's where he's trying to take us in Luke 12. This incredible Holy Spirit-wrought confidence in the sovereign plan and care of God, by which we don't ever have to be worried. So those realities, the sovereign plan and care of God are the things that Jesus points us to when he provides the rationale for why we shouldn't be worried. Because he is going to make a logical argument for why we should not be worried. He's going to give us three points, three things to consider. And they all point to the sovereign plan and care of God. So we've talked about the meaning of the command, do not be anxious, talk about what that means. Talk about the extent of the command, how far it extends into our lives. Now we hit this point of the rationale for the command. We're going to notice what Jesus uses as an argument for why not be worried. So there are three of them. We'll list them very quickly. Why should we not be worried? The points of the, the rationale. Number one, God faithfully provides for things of lesser value. God faithfully provides for things of lesser value and things that are much more temporary than we humans like the ravens, like the lilies. See, his argument is from the lesser to the greater, right? If God provides so richly for these things that are of lesser value than you and are way more temporary than you, will he not also provide for that which is of greater value and longer lasting? Yes, of course. That makes sense. We get it. Second reason this is verses 25 and 26. We, we already mentioned this one. Second reason that we should not be anxious or worry is the non-productivity of worry. 
can't add a single hour to your life by being worried. Worry is not a productive activity. There's no benefit to it. It doesn't achieve anything. It just runs around inside of us and saps all our energy, saps our life. It doesn't give life. It takes life. God faithfully provides for things of lesser value. Worry is not productive. Finally, his, his third point, this is verse 23. His third reason is the nature of life from God's perspective. The nature of life from God's perspective. Verse 23, Jesus says, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. The meaning seems to be don't be overly concerned about life's basics because there's so much more to give your energy and attention to. This, there's this thing called life, and it's more than food and clothing from God's perspective. According to Jesus, there is more. So there are his three reasons. That's his argument. What can we say in summary of these things, looking at them as a whole? Well, I think one thing that we can say is that Jesus seems to be leading us somewhere. He seems to be concerned that we do something that's productive. See, if he's pointing us away from something that's not productive, like worry, his concern seems to be we, that we spend our time doing something that is productive. And if he's saying that there's more to life than these basic things, food and drink, there's more to life than that, is he going to tell us exactly what that is? He said life is more than these things, but hasn't yet said what that something more is. See, he's, he's leading us somewhere. There's something else out there. The, the tenor of what he's saying seems to be this. You can trust God for these basics. You can trust him with your life. Don't worry about that. He's good. He's in control. Now turn your attention to something else. There's something more. There's something more that is productive. And of course, we've read the passage. We know he's going to do that. We, we know where, where he's headed. We're going to talk about that something more, that something more productive in, in just a moment. Before we do that, before we look at what he redirects our energy toward, let's appreciate what we have here in our good shepherd our good shepherd, Jesus. Let's not fail at this point to appreciate how different and how infinitely better he is than all of those other voices that are out there speaking to us. The loudest voices out there on, on podcasts, on TV networks, blogs, Websites. I'm talking specifically about the voices that are attempting to speak into the Christian world, trying to talk to you, Christ follower. The most prominent and powerful and loudest voices have every reason and make every effort to keep Christ followers in this cycle of anxiety and worry. It profits them to have our alarms constantly raised. 
You know, the letters that we get in the mail and the, the letters that come to you in the mail and the, the emails that come to your inbox, you know, the, the more alarming the subject line and the more alarming the message on the front, the more heightened the doom and gloom, well, the more likely you are to open it and the more likely, likely you are to give money to them and stay in communication with them. Just once, I would, I would love to get, just say, a letter in the mail. And instead of having all of the texts, you know, all caps and underlined five times and bold and italics and everything, just once, I would love to get a piece of mail that has very, very small letters. Small, inconspicuous letters that say something like this. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That would be a Christian message. Because that's Jesus' message. You know, Matthew 24... Even when Jesus is talking with his disciples about the end times and all of the chaos that's going to be present on earth during those times, even in that context, having that conversation with them, do you remember that he tells them, see to it that you are not alarmed? Oh, I could cry. Jesus' voice says, do not be alarmed. Fear not. Small words in your Bible. That's Jesus' message. That's his leadership. But that's not a message that brings in money. It's just the opposite. He tells us here to give our stuff away. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. See, following Jesus is much more countercultural than we even think. It's not only counter to secularism, it's also counter to majority conservative Christianity. True Christianity is unlike any voice out there claiming to be Christian or otherwise. Everyone out there is trying to make money, Jesus is trying to make disciples. He's working on a completely different kingdom. The question is, are we? Have you taken his voice as your guide? Have you taken his priorities as your own? This passage begins with, and he said to his disciples, are you his disciple? If you are, these words are for you. Fear not, little flock. Do not be anxious. Do not be worried. God is there. God is good. His plan is being worked out. Turn your concerns and your energies elsewhere. So now we get to the redirection. The redirection comes from Jesus in verse 31, actually beginning in verse 29. Do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. 
For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, instead, so here's the redirection. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. See, it's easy to see the redirection there. Do not seek these things. Instead, seek his kingdom. And of course, the first question is, okay, but how? Just how do I seek the kingdom? I think you know more about how to seek the kingdom of God than you think you do. Notice the contrast, right, in verse 29. Do not seek food, drink, clothing. Instead, seek the kingdom of God. Now, let me ask you, do we know how to seek food, drink, clothing? Oh, you bet we do. It starts with longing for that cheeseburger and the fries and the chocolate malt. Then it moves to dreaming of the cheeseburger. And I can taste it and I can smell it. I'm longing for it. Now I'm find myself driving to where I need to go in order to get it. And now I find myself shelling out the money and making the sacrifice in order to make it mine. Now I'm enjoying it. Sorry to do that to you at 11.30. (laughs) Same thing with the sneakers that you want and the shoes and the jersey, the coat, the coffee, whatever. We are expert seekers. We know how to get what we want. We will move heaven and earth to go get it because we're longing for it. Now we're laboring for it and we bring it to ourselves. We daydream about it. We think about it before we get out of bed. What's going to get me out of bed this morning? A good cup of coffee will get me out of bed this morning. I'm going to go out and find it. I'm seeking it. I'm going to the kitchen. We know how to seek things. Inner longing, outward laboring, Transfer that idea to the kingdom of God. Spiritual realm, the spiritual realm. What are you daydreaming about? What are you longing for? What are you longing to see happen around you? What are you, now, what are you laboring for? Instead of longing after and laboring after cheeseburger, something that doesn't matter eternally, Jesus counsels us to entrust that to God and put that energy into seeking the kingdom of God. Longing for. Those are the key words here. Longing for and laboring for. What's this to long for and labor for the kingdom of God? Now, it's still a little bit abstract, isn't it? See, I can't, I can't smell and touch and taste the kingdom of God like I can something to eat. So we're dealing with abstractions. He's talking about storing up treasure in heaven. I can't see that. It's not a shirt that I can put on. I've been using silly examples, but moving toward the more important, just notice what he's not instructing his disciples to do, what he's not telling us to do. He's not telling us to try and build a visible earthly kingdom here. He's talking about things that we can't see. He doesn't want us to build a visible, even a God-honoring visible 
kingdom on earth. He doesn't tell his disciples to take up swords and go conquer lands and amass wealth, amass power and influence. You know, that's been tried. That's what Israel was under Saul and David and Solomon. That's been tried and that's failed. A new and visible and tangible kingdom is coming, but only when Jesus returns, he will bring it. It will be a given kingdom. Fear not, little flock. Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That kingdom will come. It's not what Jesus has instructed us to do. He's instructed us, as a matter of fact, to do the opposite, to not gather wealth and lands. No, sell your possessions and give to the needy. That does not sound like a people that are eager to amass earthly power. That actually sounds like a people eager to picture the life and ministry of Jesus. Utter self-giving. Okay. So that's what we're supposed to do. Proclaim and picture the life of Jesus Christ. Long to do that. Labor to do that. And if you want to know just how to labor for that, I'm not sure that you actually do want to know. I don't know if I want to know. Like, what's the first action step in laboring for the kingdom? We don't have to guess, it's here. It's not a mystery. It's just that we absolutely don't want to do it. We want it to be something else. What's that first step? It's the very next thing he talks about, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Okay, no, next option, please. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is it any wonder that for two millennia, Christians in the name of Christ have fought for and killed for and betrayed the name of Christ to gain and maintain earthly kingdoms? Of course we've done that. Because we have made our treasure, power and wealth and influence on this earth right now. We simply have refused to do what Jesus says to do in Luke 12. And what he says will set our hearts in a different place, very near to his own, looking very much like him. So what am I saying? That we should all sell our possessions and give to the needy? No, I'm saying that's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's telling you, disciple. And I am not going to blunt the clear teaching of Jesus. I am just going to let you wrestle with his word on your own. I'm content to let you do that. And if you've been listening very patiently this morning and you are not a a Christ follower, I just want to respectfully say this to you, that before you reject Christianity, make sure that you have observed, observed the real thing. Before you reject it because of what you have seen in Christians, make sure you know that the only authentic picture is in the life and words of Jesus himself. The rest of us 
are just working on trying not to be worried and trying to find the courage to give our lives away. The best title for us, if you really want to, really want to give us a title, is probably We of Little Faith. That's what Jesus titles us here in this passage. I think that fits for me. And in contrast to us, here's this great son of God marching to the cross to bear the sin of humanity. To give his life away for the glory of the father, certain of the father's goodness and his plan. It is a significant thing that the only truly innocent sufferer who has ever lived was also the one who is the most certain of the Father's goodness. I would recommend following him as closely as you can for all of your days. Father, after these moments being confronted with the word, we we thank you for the true word of Jesus. We thank you that we find things here that we have to wrestle with, that um, go against our natural inclinations as human beings, things we don't want to do. We thank you that we find things here hard to believe. We find things here that are hard to do. We find them spoken not by someone who cherished wealth and privilege, but by someone ready to lay down his life and give away everything for the testimony of your goodness and assured forgiveness when we trust in the blood of Jesus. So we recognize the smallness of our faith. We own the title that Jesus has given us. We pray that it not always be that way, that we could grow in trust and confidence enjoying life with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.